0: Welcome to Waymaker Church Podcast. The heart of the house is that these messages would help you to encounter, live for, and advance the kingdom of God. Enjoy this week's message. It's an honor to get to bring you the word today. We are in our second week of our series called Reconstructing Faith, and uh, truth be told, I believe that these are difficult times that we live in, right? You can watch this. You can watch what's going on. If you've read the end of the book, the Bible, I tell you what, you're looking at some things going like, hey, buddy right? There's some question marks that may be arising. There's some things in our heart, and there's, it's just a difficult time that we live in right now when we find ourselves in constant, how do I say this, conundrums of faith. Yes, the alliteration is intentional. Constant conundrums of faith. What we thought we know and the truth don't always seem to line up. This day and age, we find ourselves even dealing with a blatant disregard for the truth, which we learned last week should be expected. But does that give us the right to redefine truth? Does it give us the right to redefine truth? Last week, Pastor Joel dove into the reality that love is the foundation of our faith. It is the principal element by which all things work And many struggle with that thought process, and this is why it is necessary to reconstruct our faith to his version. Say his version. Oh, only about 30% of y'all did that. Say his his version. Not ours. His version of faith. His version of understanding. We need to reconstruct our faith and our story to his version, to his story which is our history. What does Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 tell us? It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. I love how the New Living Translation says it. It says, do not depend on your own understanding. Another version I grew up with, it just simply says, lean not on your own understanding, right? So that means that we're still leaning, but it's really not in our understanding. But the New Living Translation, it just simply says, don't do it. Don't lean on your understanding. Seek his will in all you do, and he will show you which path to take. We struggle with the reality that the undertow of love is what should move us to action and not simply a transaction of debts or approving of one's righteousness. You see, in our humanity, we're used to having to prove it. We're used to having to be better, right? You do something wrong, we do it. we call, we pay a penance, right? It's like, oh, I shouldn't have done that. I'm going to go, I'm going to bake them a cookie, I'm going to bake them a cake. I shouldn't have done that. I said something. I need to call them. Up. Hey, do you guys want to come over and have dinner? It's like we have to pay for what we've done. But that shouldn't be the undertow of it, especially when it comes to our relationship with God. It's love that's the undertow. We were reminded that it is possible to learn the form and functions of Christianity and completely miss the purpose behind the performance. We were also then reminded that the definition of love is not subject to culture. Y'all, if if love was subject to culture over the last 2,000 years, love's definition would have changed 2,000 times. Then we were challenged to develop love in our lives by renewing our minds, as Romans 12 1 and 2 instructs us, and then we learn his ways and keep his commandments as 1 John 5 instructs us. The love of God is why we gather today. Maybe our love has been stretched. Maybe the enemy has stomped on it. Maybe there's some people that are around us that have genuinely hurt us, right? I hate to say it, like life hurt is real. Family hurt is real. Church hurt is real. For some reason, we give the world a pass when it hurts us, but if anybody else hurts us, we hold them to the nth degree. So I recognize it, but the love of God is why we gather here today, and I pray that in your life in Sundays, in church, in worship, even in moments like this, that these aren't simply obligations that we can't wait to get to the end of. I pray that you encounter God's glory and his majesty. You know what's interesting about the word glory? If you look in the Hebrew text, it literally talks about his weightiness. We sing songs We run after, we pray for, let your glory fall down. And then then when the atmosphere changes and things get weighty, we quickly move out of it because we're uncomfortable. I wonder what it would look like if we just stayed under the weight of who he is. What would change? What would get pressed out? Sometimes the transformation comes after the pressing happens. Like, let me squeeze that out of you. I didn't even write that down. We can't even go down that road right now. I pray you encounter his glory and his majesty, knowing that God is love. And when you truly encounter him, everything changes. So before I dive into the word today, let's pray real quick and ask God to invade the impossible. Father God, right now we surrender to you. My words, Father, I pray they be your words. I pray I don't go off on any tangents you don't have set before us. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for the transformation we've seen. We thank you for the baptisms. We thank you for the blood and the body that was shed on Calvary that we have just take partaken in, in the communion which you have asked us to do. Father, both the ordinances of the faith you've called us to have transpired in this place today, and we are thankful that you are moving. I pray right now that your word continues to move. I pray that our ears are receptive to your word that our hearts are ready to receive your word. And I pray that transformation happens in this place. I know repentance, Father God, is simply turning and going the other way. May the word spoken today cause us to take a look at our lives and if we are in a misdirection, if we are going the wrong direction, Father God, that we would simply step in alignment with your word knowing that repentance has taken place in that. God, I ask that you have your way in Jesus' mighty name. Amen, amen, amen. We all have experiences in our lives, right? Every single one of us in here, you have had experience after experience after experience. And, and some of them may have even become pivotal moments in our existence. It, it could have been an accomplishment that propelled you forward into your future. You may have done, a, how can I think of it? You may have done a science project, Right? You just did a science project, and you nailed it. It was an A+. And the teacher's like, oh, my goodness, that is absolutely amazing. You're like, I'm going to be a scientist. You know what I mean? Like, everything changed in that moment. You didn't even know you liked science until you did that project. And that little line went up in that fake thermometer that you made. And you're just like, the Lord is good. He's called me to science. And that might have been in, right? Some pivotal moments in our lives. Maybe some of these experiences we've had that could have been a choice that someone else made. When you were a child, maybe some kind of harm, some kind of abuse, something could have happened to cause you to no longer trust individuals. That there's a brokenness and there's a hurting on the inside and you want to trust, but you just can't. And you want to feel worthy, but you always feel dirty. And there's experiences that have put you in that position where you're constantly fighting that. Maybe it could have been a choice um, that you made that changed the course of your dreams. Maybe it was something like, I don't know, getting, getting pregnant at a young age or getting mixed up in drugs and alcohol, finding comfort in things like food or meds that, that then have been dealing um, with your body and changing some things, and all of a sudden we're, we're dealing with the consequences of unhealthy and a hurting body. For every action, there's a consequence. For every action, there's a consequence. Good actions usually result in good consequences. Say usually because it's not all the time, right? You could have someone that's super fit and they're training for triathlons and then boom, heart attack. It doesn't make sense. We don't know why. Bad actions can result in bad consequences. And I use the word can because it seems like many times those who do bad things get away with it for a season before it eventually catches up to them. But whatever the case may be, these choices and consequences, or in other terms, these causes and effects... Create experiences. And here's a danger that I want to address today as we're looking at reconstructing faith. We need to change our thought processes here. Here's a danger I want to address today. The word of God has to be bigger than my experience. The word of God has to be bigger than my experience. Over the years, I've had plenty of experiences from organized sports where you actually play to win, not today's organized sports where you play to play, and everybody's a winner. That's a lie. Like, stop that. Not everybody's a winner, okay? You know how I know, like, some of these things have transformed, and millennials are the ones that are at the helm of a lot of these things right now? Like, we still have participation awards. It's just called a free t-shirt when you get there, okay? It's all the same. We messed it up. We messed it up. We need to go back for winning. We need to go back for working hard. We need to go back for trying hard. Not... Not to rub it in the other person's face, but to give something to fight for. Because if everything's eh, then nothing will ever be amazing. Right? Sorry, I didn't mean to go there, but I did. The excitement of organized sports and playing to win, to the joys of even creating music with my peers in high school and college. I love what we get to do here. I love this worship team. They are phenomenal. They work hard. They are very talented. And I'm so thankful for that. But I remember also starting in that sixth grade band, going through high school and being all right, getting to college and playing literally one of the hardest pieces that was ever written for band. There's a gentleman that played, I think, French horn or trombone. I'm not 100% sure. He played for the United States Air Force Band in Langley. And uh, he actually had a friend that was a composer, and they had a bet. And he said, I bet you there's not one song you can write that we can't play. He said, game on. That piece was called Dance for Latra, which is probably German for something I have no idea what it means. But that all said, it is so hard, and I got to play that. And we nailed it and we actually played it faster than the United States Air Force Band when I was at NMSU. Not to brag, but you know, like it was pretty lit. All right. Anyways, all of that come to pass. Got to be a part of some amazing things and do some amazing stuff. The joys of getting married. I remember the day like it was yesterday. I would do it all over again in a heartbeat. Having kids. I would do that all over again in a heartbeat too. I'm enjoying the season we're at. I don't miss the diapers. Okay. I'm just being real. Even becoming a pastor, all of these were big moments in life. Then you throw on top of that all the pieces in between, the hiking trips, the vacations, the, the days in the backyard, the Sunday drives growing up, the Christmases, the birthdays, the movie nights, all the memories, the list could go on and on and on. You see, those moments have come to define my idea of life. Those moments have come to define how I feel life should look. These things are my experiences. And if I'm not careful, okay, I'm going to say this boldly. If I'm not careful, I will ask God to fit into my experiences rather than submitting my experience to his will and his way. I think we all have a tug of war in those things. So often we hear in the gospel and in Paul's teachings to turn, to repent, to stop, to change, to be transformed, to take captive, to no longer live in the ways you once were. And you can see this in the whole Sermon on the Mount. Jesus was telling of them all kinds of things that countered human understanding. And we're gonna be reading there real quick in Matthew chapter five, verses three through 12. But you can see the conversation that Jesus is having. Like he just got through with his 40 days in the wilderness that he was out there. Um, he went through a, a moment where the devil tried to tempt him three different times and he overcame the enemy. He still has overcome the enemy. He has never lost to the enemy. He will never lose to the enemy, all right? I want you to remember that today. But he just got through that moment he comes in he says these words repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand and then in scripture we have the sermon on the mount that shows up now this consumes all of chapter 5 chapter 6 and a good chunk of chapter 7 i'm not going to read all of it but there's some things i want us to see here because jesus immediately shows up and he's telling them things that kind of counter their understanding he's telling them things that he's going like hey i know y'all think like this but let's talk Let's read. We're in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. And I'm going to like say a little, talk a little, say a little, talk a little. We'll kind of go back and forth there. So bear with me. But verse 3 said, God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. That immediately counters our understanding because of the fact that usually we're fighting for more. We're fighting for more money. We're fighting for more prestige. Look at today's day and age. Everyone wants to be an influencer. If you like my video, press subscribe right? Don't forget to hit the bell. We all want to be influencers, and I say we, I mean they. I'm not out there. I'm not cool. I've given up on being cool. When I turned 40, I was like, sweet, I don't even have to try to be cool anymore, okay? But the truth of the, yeah, I'm sorry for those of you who are over 40. I guess you're not cool anymore by default. My apologies. Um, <clears throat> but God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him. That, that's counter, because we're always fighting for more, 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 more. If I could just have some prestige, if I could just have a platform, if I could just say, if they would just hear me out, if, if I wasn't a nobody, I always joke, I even said it a couple times while we were on our, our trip, we had our network conference this week, and it was a powerful time, but there's so many times that like different areas we go or a line you'd get into and the other line be moving faster, and I'd always say something like, well, us peasants over here. I say it jokingly, um, but if it comes out of my mouth, it's probably registered in my heart somewhere. But reality is, if you feel like you've been put down, we don't recognize that God's like, no, 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 I'll bless you. Those who are poor and realize their need for me, like, it's not about what you can get. It's not about what you have. Let's keep moving on. Verse four, God blesses those who mourn, for they will be comforted. What is he saying? You don't have to have it all together. Quit pretending like you have it all together. If you're hurting, bring it to him. If you're broken, bring it to him. If you, if you are like, oh man, I, I don't even know what to do anymore. God, like every single thing I do, it seems like it's falling apart. Bring it to him. God blesses those who mourn, for they will be comforted. God blesses those who are humble. Or if you're from East Texas, God blesses those who are humble. They've lost their H out there. I don't know why. For they will inherit the whole earth. Humility goes a long ways. If there's one thing I remember growing up is my dad telling me this. Josh. You don't have to tell people you're good at stuff. If you're good at stuff, they'll know. I was like, hmm, because there was a season that I was really good in music, and so I was like, yeah, no, I was able to totally play that. It's no big deal. Like everybody's looking at me like, hey, wow, he really played that, and he made all state, and that's awesome. And like I was bragging about myself. My dad's like, knock it off. As a father, I understand where he's coming from now, but he's literally telling me like, stop, 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 stop. If you're good. Everybody will know just because you're good. You don't have to tell them. That has stuck around. God blesses those who hunger and thirst for justice, for they will be satisfied. If you run after the right thing, God's got your back. God blesses those who are merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Far too often, we want people to look past our failures and mistakes but we hold everybody else accountable for what they've done. God's saying like, hey, no, be merciful. Then you'll receive mercy. You want to use guilt, shame, and condemnation? They'll use it on you. Whatever you sow, you'll reap. God blesses those who work for peace, for they will be called children of God. Strive for peace. If you're one of those people that you're just like, oh, I just love picking fights, pray about that. Pray about that. If you love pushing your spouse's buttons, pray about that. Because I can tell you right now, that's not how God works. That's not how God moves. Be careful looking at them in this place. You might start a fight right now. I mean, like, he's talking to you. You know, like, don't don't do that, okay? Um, But truth of the matter is, if that's who you are, that might be something that needs to be adjusted. Because Jesus said, blessed are those who work for peace. Because they'll be called what? Ooh, so if you're not running after peace, what are you called? We'll leave that to your imagination. Verse 10, God blesses those who are persecuted for doing right, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. I tell my boys all the time, do what you know is right. I don't care what anybody else is doing. Do what you know is right. If you do what you know is right, even if it ends up being wrong, all I can hold you accountable for is for what you know. If you didn't know any better, it's time for learning. If you did know better and we chose the wrong thing, it's time for some teaching, some discussion, and if need be, some discipline. But no matter what, you are responsible for what you know. I tell them that all the time. And they're usually like, okay, end quote. But I tell you what, I hear it all the time, and I don't say this boastfully. I'm very thankful for it because this day and age, like PKs, pastors, kids can be the worst. But I'm very thankful that everywhere we go, they go like, if I could just have, like at school, if I could just have 20 of your kid, my, my classroom would be so different. Now, they may be saying that to butter me up. I don't care. They said it. I'm writing it down. It's written in glory. All right? All right, cool. God blesses you when people mock you and persecute you and lie about you and say all sorts of evil things against you because you are my followers. Verse 12 here, be happy about it. Be very glad for great reward awaits you in heaven. And remember, the ancient prophets were persecuted in the same way. Do you see what Jesus is saying here? He's saying, be careful not to wrap your identity up in the wrong things. It'd be better if you are poor, sad, humble, merciful, justice-seeking, pure, and persecuted than to have it all together according to the world standard and miss the kingdom. Does this mean Jesus wants you miserable? No, it does not. Because the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, meekness, self-control. Jesus is simply saying, my kingdom is different. My kingdom is different. My life is different. If you run after this, then you might run after the wrong things. He's saying, seek me. This is why he continues to teach what it should look like. In verses 13 through 16, he tells us to be salt and light, to literally make an impact To be loved with skin on it. Verses 17 through 20 of chapter 5. Jesus tells his listeners that he came to fulfill the law and warns of the hypocrisy of the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees. He's saying they're saying all the right things, but they're doing the wrong things. They're just heaping guilt, shame, and condemnation on you, but they're not doing the right things. That is not necessarily the way. He's saying, follow me. Then he goes on to challenge the fullness of the law by comparing it to what is said and the truth behind it. And we're going to look at a couple of these examples. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 and 22, it says, you have heard that our ancestors were told you must not murder. If you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. This is where Jesus talks. If your Bible's written in red, it's written in red here. It says, but I say... If you are even angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, you are in danger of being brought before the court. And if you curse someone, you are in danger of the fires of hell. See, those verses we want to look past so we feel justified in what we just said about the person we just said. I'm not making this up. Jesus says, you said it this way, but I say Look at verse 27. It says, you have heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery. But I say anyone who even looks at a woman with lust, let's be real, 21st century, anyone who looks at another person with lust, ladies, you're not free of this too. You guys deal with lust just as much as the men do. Anyone who looks with lust has already committed adultery in their heart. And then again, he takes the same approach with divorce. He takes the same approach with vows. He takes the same approach with revenge, and he's loving our enemies. You know what cracks me up here, like legitimately, every time I think about it? He's actually saying in these moments, you need me. Jesus is saying, you need me. He knows he's a Messiah, so he's not saying that conceitedly. He is saying, you need me, you need my sacrifice, because the truth is, you think you can follow this law, but the reality is, the heart of the law goes so much deeper than what you have learned, and you still can't do it. Do you understand that? The true fullness of the law and what is asked by God, we still aren't meeting the watered-down version of it. And Jesus is saying, you need me. Jesus then moves into instruction about giving to the needy and making sure it's not done in vanity. If we're serving so we can be seen, we need to check our heart. Then he talks about prayer and fasting, but making sure it's not done in vanity like is modeled by the religious leaders of that day. Then he teaches about how to pray and the truth about forgiveness. And you can see that in verses 14 and 15. He says, if you forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly father will forgive you. But if you refuse to give others Your father will not forgive your sins. What's he saying? This is going to look different. You want to feel justified, but the only justification that makes sense is my justification. It's what Jesus is saying. I wish I had time to dive into all these things deeper today. The list goes on and on. Matthew chapter 7 wraps up that sermon in the beginning of his ministry, telling us not to judge others, showing us effective prayer, the golden rule telling us that narrow is the way to him, but wide is the path to destruction. Then he also shows us how to identify people by the fruit of their lives, what true disciples look like, and the value of a solid foundation. And this is the essence of why we teach and why we preach, to sure up the foundations. Sometimes we just need to put a little support back in place, going like, man, I didn't recognize that part was falling apart. Lord, I didn't recognize my heart was going down that avenue. I didn't understand that. In that entire sermon, though, I truly believe the crux of the message was centered around Matthew 6, 33, where it says, seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously. He will give you everything you need. He's saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Seek the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Seek the kingdom. Jesus was saying, I have a way of life that is counter to your experience. Will you follow me? Let me remind you today that the word of God has to be bigger than my experience. The word of God has to be bigger than your experience. Well, Pastor Josh, why is my experience such a big deal? Because in our humanity, the sum of our experiences have a tendency to become our identity. And when our identity or our experiences comes to be challenged by his word, we don't know who we are anymore. This is why in reconstructing faith, we need to move out of the realm of, this is what I do because it's what I do, into the realm of, this is what I do because God said so. Tendency, we get stuck in, this is what I do because it's what I do. Why? Do we do these things because they're comfortable? Do we do these things simply because they're familiar, or do we move into these things because God said so? In 2 Corinthians, Paul challenges the church with this same thought process. He is countering their logic because he sees the plight between what they think they know and the truth of the word, and he sums up that process with this statement. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, it says, this means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone and a new life has begun. He is literally saying, throw off the old man. It is literally what we saw happen over here. Two go in the water, the new version of you and the old version of you. One comes out of the water, the old version of you is dead. You're not merely the sum of your past mistakes. You're a child of God. A new life has begun. Even in baptisms, we see that is a new life in Christ, not just symbolically, but spiritually. And you see a vivid example of this in the word. In Exodus, you have the children of Israel They're in bondage for 430 years. Moses shows back up on the scene after being there. He's like, let my people go. And Pharaoh's like, oh, no, you don't. You know what I mean? And then there's 10 plagues that come to pass. All of those plagues are a mockery of the gods of Egypt. Every single one of those are a mockery of the gods of Egypt. So they're finally sent out of there. Not only are they sent out of there, they're sent out of there with stuff. Because on their way out, Moses is like, hey, ask them for basically everything they own the gold, the silver, all those things. They were mourning because they just lost all of their first mourns because the blood wasn't over the doorpost as it was. And the death angel passed the Hebrew people, but it didn't pass the Egyptian people. So you see all this thing. They're leaving and they're leaving with bounty. They have everything they need. They get to the Red Sea, they're now stuck. God hardens Pharaoh's heart. He's trying to prove to them, I'm the one that's doing all these things. I'm the one that's in control. So the military might and strategy and everything that Egypt has to offer, everything that Egypt stood for, they were like the Rome of the day. And they, they ran after them. And it says a pillar of fire comes up behind them and it actually protects them. They walk across the sea on dry ground. Now, imagine you're fishing on a boat and watching all this happen. We're like, that's a big old cloud of fire. <laughs> okay. Um right? Imagine all that transpiring. And then a wind blows and it opens up. You're just like, say what? I'm not going to fish over there. I know there's no fish over there. (laughs) But if you're to watch the people, you'd watch them walk in and walk out. It looks like they're going underwater and coming out of water. They walked on dry ground, but you see symbolism that happened there. In that moment, they were walking away from their past. After they were across, the fire went away. Pharaoh followed them and his army, which to me is absolute idiocy. I don't know what, I don't know what possessed him. I mean, it had to be God at work going, like, follow them, I dare you. You know, like, I, if I was like, hey, you know what? Your God can do that. We're just going to go home. You know, like, I'm pretty sure my attitude might have been a little bit different. Nonetheless, history tells us Pharaoh followed them. And one fell swoop, everything crashed together. That army was knocked out. Y'all, there, there's actually scientific proof that there's chariots and all those things right now in the Red Sea. It's all there. Okay? So the truth of the matter is, this came to pass. And in one moment, it was all knocked out. Here's the crazy part about it, though Israel, the Hebrews, were now no longer under the oppression of Egypt. They were no longer stuck. They were no longer slaves, but less than two days they get into the wilderness over there. They're already complaining. Well, at least in Egypt, we had. At least in Egypt we had shelter. At least in Egypt we had meat that we could eat. At least in Egypt we had water. Did you bring us out here to kill us, Moses? According to the scholars, it was about a year and a half that God dwelt with his people, giving them instruction, teaching them through Moses, the tabernacle practices, all those things. He provided food, he provided water, he provided protection from the sun. And then he was given heat and light at night. But they still complained. And they went and scoped out the promised land, and they came back with a negative report, two of which was just like, we should go in there. If God said we can have it, we can have it. The other ten are like, dude, did you see those guys? We were grasshoppers in their sight. There's giants all over that land. How are we going to beat them? You could see the war that was there. They complained. They complained. This invokes another 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. You know, what's most interesting is the fact that the children of Israel were no longer slaves. They were no longer bound by their suppressors in Egypt. But because of their experience, mentally, they were still slaves. They were still stuck. They only saw the impossibilities when they were supernaturally having their needs met. Needs met whatever, you can interchange those. It's one hump, two humps. Supernaturally, God was providing for them day after day after day. I firmly believe that the 40 years was used as a mental reset for the children of God. Even they were allowed to have some battles take place so that they could learn we can be victorious that they're no longer slaves. You see, their experience kept them from the promise because their experience trumped his word to them. Their experience kept them from the promise because their experience trumped his word to them. God was asking them to surrender their old identity to him and to begin a new life. And often we do the same thing. How often do we miss God's promises or at least miss his original timing as we need another round in the wilderness to grasp onto the truth that his word is greater than our experiences. And we can see this struggle in our modern day living people whose lives are wrapped up in their work and and that work is all of a sudden gone. Well, I I just don't know who I am anymore. People whose lives are wrapped up in things. Maybe it's the nice car, the nice house, the fancy jewelry, the things that make it look like you have money, and now those things are taken away from you. I, I don't know who I am anymore. Maybe it's the mom whose whole life is built around being a mom, and now the kids are grown up and gone, and, and we have nowhere to, no one to mother, and, and, and now we're having an identity crisis. Here's something we all need to understand in Christ, we are a new creation. Old things have passed away, all things become new. In Christ, you are no longer the sum of your past mistakes. You are a child of God who in their past has made some mistakes and in their newness of life might still make some mistakes, but you are a son. You are a daughter of the king, not a product of your failure. You are more valuable to God than your work and what you can do for him. You are more valuable to God than any of the things this world equates with value. A prime example is the world wants to go back to the gold standard. Y'all, that's God's pavement in heaven. What we consider the most valuable metal on this earth is a base of standard street material for God. You're more valuable to God than your parenting skills. If you're a new creation in Christ Jesus... The cross, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, the ascension of Christ, the infilling of the Holy Spirit, all of these things point to something. The truth of the fact that God seeks us out and provides for us like he did the children of Israel. It shows us that God is in pursuit of us, that he wants to dwell with us, that he has come after us, that he has set up a tabernacle in the midst of us. It shows us that he made a way to be made new, not to be stuck in sin, not to stay subject to the fallen nature of this world. I want you to see something here. In Christ, humanity has the choice to be redeemed. I might challenge your thought process here for a moment, okay? Humanity has the choice to be redeemed. What Jesus did, the payment is enough. Anyone who comes to him is saved. Anyone. Will all come to him? No. No. But anyone who wants to come to him is saved. The price is paid in full. So in essence, humanity is redeemed, even though there's some people that have not stepped into that redemption. Our redemption in Jesus is our choice. And ours alone. Your parents can't do it for you. Your spouse can't do it for you. You have to make that choice. You don't have to choose him, though. That's the scary part. God will not make you choose him. Now here's something I want you to grab onto that's going to challenge some things. What Jesus did redeemed humanity. But the world is still under a curse. That's the whole purpose of the book of Revelation. The world is still under a curse. We are not, for we have been set free from the curse by the shedding of the blood of Jesus at Calvary. If we choose to live outside of that covering, though... We're actually choosing to live under the curse because the world itself is still cursed. It's a fallen world. The trumpets in Revelation, the scrolls, the bowls that are poured out in Revelation, all of that is judgment on this physical world. Not simply the humanity that occupies it, but the physical earth. That is why it groans with labor pains at the end of days. I'll tell you right now, God will finish what he started. In the beginning, there was one kingdom, and in the end, there will be one kingdom. God will restore order. There will be a great white throne judgment. You're not going to get away from that. We will all stand before him one day. I'm hoping to be at the judgment seat of Christ. That way, at the great white throne judgment, we're, we're, we're just there with them. Either way, those things will come to pass. Whether you fully believe in them or not, the truth of the matter is they will come to pass. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. There will be, uh, we will be in resurrected heavenly bodies as originally intended in the creation account of Adam and Eve. God is giving you the ability to step into this newness of life now. As we live in a fallen world, it will not be all cupcakes and roses, but we can live in communion with God this side of eternity if we will simply surrender our kingdom to his and let his word reign over our experiences. We need to surrender our old identity to Christ. And begin our new life. How do I do that, Pastor Josh? I'm glad you asked. First thing's this, own where you're at. Own where you're at. Well, Pastor Josh, this doesn't seem super deep. No, it's really deep because for some reason we continue to make excuses. Well, i mean, like, this happened to me when I was a little kid and so really it's their fault. No, own where you are at. If you know what happened and you know what transpired, it doesn't matter what it is, own where you are at. Quit blaming people for your past. Quit blaming people for your mistakes. Quit blaming people for your choices because there has come a point in time that you understand, but it's still their fault. I don't know about you, but I don't want to live underneath someone else's attitude, underneath someone else's demeanor or opinion. And the irony is they probably don't even know they hurt you. I'm not going to give someone else that much authority in my life. Own where you are at. If you see the identity struggle in your life, own it. You have nothing to prove. You have nothing to hide. If someone countering your thought process makes you insecure and your identity might rest in your intellect then, or your need to be needed, recognize that, own it, and surrender it to God. If someone challenges your parenting and you come unglued because how dare they tell you how to raise your child? then your identity may rest in the fact that you are a parent. You may feel like you fail at everything else in life, but at least you're a good parent, and now that is countered? Well, if if I'm not a good parent, then who am I? It's okay to own that. I'll be real, I have struggled with that. Own it, give it to God. Let's say you're a rancher and you love it. Just making up an excuse, you can put whatever you want in there, okay? Um, You you do computer work and you absolutely love it. I don't know, you make bread and that's just your thing and you're a baker and praise God, you're, you're baking bread. Okay, whatever. You're a rancher and you love it. Whatever it is and you love it, right? As a rancher, you'd rather be on horseback in a blizzard than stuck behind a desk. But something happens and you no longer can do ranching. Uh, what am I supposed to do? I'm a rancher and I can't do my ranching. Then who am I? It doesn't matter what it is, own that. What you do is not who you are. Even when you make mistakes, own them. What you have done is not who you are. So own where you're at, and then secondly, give it to God to change. Pastor Josh, this doesn't sound really hard. It's not, but for some reason we complicate the fire out of it. Give it to God to change. The Bible tells us to confess our sins. 1 John 1, 9. We confess our sins to Him. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. And I remember the um, scripture at the top of my head, but the Word also says, "Confess our sins to one another, and there will be healing." There will be healing. Anybody in here want healing? If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin. Confess. Secondly, if something happened to you that has become your identity, forgive whoever it is that hurt you. Ephesians 4:23 tells us instead of being instead, be kind to each other, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God through Christ has forgiven you. Forgive as you have been forgiven. Now, I know there's a tug of war here because if you ask God to forgive you, but you still feel like you carry the guilt, shame, and condemnation because the enemy is still lying to you, you have a hard time accepting forgiveness from others or forgiving others because you don't feel like you're forgiven. Truth of the matter is, you are forgiven. If you are in Christ, that is washed away. All things become new. The sin that was scarlet red is now white as snow. That's the reality of the situation. You're going to have to believe that what Jesus did is bigger than what you've done. If we have stood in our own ability or provision, ask God to forgive us of our pride and to help us to grow in humility. For James 4, 6, and 7 tells us he gives grace generously. As scriptures say, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So humble yourselves before God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. See, we love quoting the resist the devil and he will flee from you, but we forget that first part. Humble yourself before God. Surrender to him, surrender to his kingdom, surrender to his way. This list could easily go on and on. Note that this journey will follow the same avenue for everyone. But it's going to look slightly different as well, because there's not one of us in here that can truly say that we have walked a mile in someone else's shoes. We may have similar experiences, but we haven't had the same experiences. Give it to God to change. Allow his spirit, the Holy Spirit, to come into your life and then begin to listen to his instruction as the word tells us that he will guide us into all truth in John 16, 13, which simply leads me to my last point. Walk in the newness of life. Walk in the newness of life. God's word will change your norms. It will it doesn't matter who you are, when you truly surrender to God, it's amazing how our past begins to fade away. The drug addict walks away from the drugs. The alcoholic walks away from the alcohol. The one that's addicted from, to food walks away from the buffet. Like, it's, it's amazing how all of these things begin to transpire. It's why there's some movements that are out right now that I'm going like, there's no way God can support that because there's no transformation. You can't ask God to bless your sin. Transformation changes. Walk in the newness of life. God's word will change your norms. This might challenge your identity if your identity is wrapped up in the world's point of view. Some simple examples here. The world says sex outside of marriage is fine. The word says that it's not in Hebrews 13.4. The world says living together and not being married is fine, it's convenient, but the word says it's not as it typically leads to sexual immorality or fornication in which the verses and the Greek word they use here is "porneia," which literally means unlawful lust. The world says let your heart lead you, but the word tells us that man's heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked in Jeremiah 17, 9. The world says, let your anger be your fuel to obliterate your enemies. The word says, don't let the sun go down on your anger and to love your enemies. This is a different kingdom. We're talking about reconstructing faith. This is a different kingdom. You can't make faith look like the world. And I'm gonna tell you right now, this is one thing that's so unique about Christianity that I wish everybody would grab onto. First things first, there is no human on this earth that would set the standard so high that we would need a savior. If this was man writing this, we would have wrote a way that we could get out of it on our own merit, but we cannot. We need the son of God who has come and shed his life for us, that the blood has been poured out, that he was poured out for us. There's not every other religion. If you do the right things and work really hard and whatever the case may be, you can earn something. But in this one, the more you submit, the more you humble yourself, the lower you go intentionally by serving the king, the higher he lifts you up. It doesn't make sense, but that's the truth of the matter. It's a different kingdom, one where the love of God will have to be my foundation, and the one where His word must become greater than my experiences. That's until my experiences begin to line up with His word. Can I tell you that's the heart of the Father? That your experiences begin to line up with His word? Own where you're at, submit it to God to change walk in the newness of life why it'd be valuable for us to understand this but following paul's instruction we should surrender our old identity to christ and begin our new life i don't know how you have identified yourself in this place but we should surrender our old identity to christ and begin our new life how does that happen the word of god has to be bigger than your experience Thank you for listening to the Waymaker podcast. To simply connect, or if this message ministered to you and you would like to support the ministry, you can simply go to waymakerchurch.org.